You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual So this amazing thing happened in Colorado. Somebody gave, we don't know who, uh, what organizations, what individuals, they gave a, this large private donation, $5 million to the state in 2009 to fund an experimental program that provided free or cut rate IUDs and other form of long-lasting contraception to teenagers in that state. And how'd that experimental program do? It did great. drop in Colorado's teen birth rate over five years. The teen abortion rate dropped by 35% between 2009 and 2012 in the counties in Colorado that were served by the program. And it saved Colorado all sorts of money too. For every dollar spent on the program, the state saved an estimated $5.85 and money they didn't have to spend on welfare programs. There's a lot of writing about this program uh, as people are beginning to assess it and and see how successful it was last year. And I wrote this after reading these results, which are tremendous. The lesson in Colorado for conservatives ought to be this. You can be against abortion or you can be against contraception, but you cannot be against abortion and against contraception. And they are increasingly right-wingers are against contraception. They are fighting contraception. But conservatives who uh, oppose contraception increasingly and are fighting it, fighting access to it, We have to make them eat this fact that opposing contraception, making contraception harder for women to get means more unplanned pregnancies and more unplanned pregnancies mean more abortions. So if you are fighting contraception, you are fighting for abortion. When I wrote that last year, looking at the results of this Colorado study, I was speaking of conservatives generally, conservatives nationally, when I asked why they were fighting so hard to make contraception so much harder to obtain. I wasn't actually talking to conservatives in Colorado. I figured that surely conservatives in Colorado, having seen the effectiveness of this program, having witnessed how dramatically it lowered the unplanned pregnancy rate, conservatives hate unplanned pregnancies, having watched the numbers of teenagers getting abortions in Colorado plummet and conservatives hate abortion, and having seen how much money it saved the state, conservatives hate spending money on welfare, except for corporations and military contractors. I mean this is a program that saved nearly $6 for every dollar spent and dramatically lowered the abortion rate too. Surely conservatives in Colorado wouldn't kill this insanely effective program, would they? Ha ha ha, of course they would, and they just did. In Colorado, a Senate committee killed the bill on a party-line vote with Republicans voting against it that would have funded this program now that the private donation money has run out. And you're never going to believe what the reasoning is behind Colorado Republicans moved to kill this bill that lowered the abortion rate, lowered the unplanned pregnancy rate, and saved the state money. They're worried, quoting Representative Kathleen Conti, Republican Littleton, and I'm just going to quote her. Are we communicating anything in that message of providing contraception that says you don't have to worry, you're covered? Does that allow a lot of young ladies to go out there and look for love in all the wrong places as the old song goes? She asked, and then she voted to kill this bill. So Republicans in Colorado are worried that this program is sending a message to young people that it might be okay for them to have sex. And Colorado Republicans hate that message 
potential message, that, that misconstruing of what the program is all about that, that, that some young Coloradans may engage in, they hate that message more than they hate abortion. That they are willing, you know, they think abortion is murder and got to save all the babies. They're willing to kill babies if it means not sending that message. I'm trying to think if there was a, anything on the left where we were willing to drive up the abortion rate to make a point. We were willing to kill babies to make a point about climate change and global warming that Republicans would not stop having a fit. Republicans would be having seizures all over the country and falling on the ground to point out the immorality and the moral bankruptcy of the left if we were willing to kill babies to make a point. And here we have Republicans in Colorado killing babies to make a point. They're going to drive the abortion rate for young people back up 35%. That is not an insignificant number. Going to drive it right the fuck back up because because somebody somewhere might be having sex for fun without suffering, without being punished. As Amanda Marcotte wrote at RH Reality Check, as the situation in Colorado shows, conservatives are willing, eager even, to keep the teen pregnancy rate sky high on the slim hope that doing so might scare someone sometime out of having sex. It suggests they want people to suffer unnecessary problems like STIs and unintended pregnancy to punish them for engaging in sexual activity. I would just add that it suggests, no, it proves, it proves that conservatives will happily kill all the babies if doing so will stop people, young people, poor people, unmarried people, gay people, from enjoying, quote-unquote, consequence-free sex. That is their term. Sex should always be consequential. Something's got to happen. Got to ruin your life. Because really, it's sex they hate. Sex for pleasure they hate, which is 99.99% of the sex that people have, including conservatives. And they fucking hate it. They hate all of it. They hate that kind of sex, the kind of sex that they themselves are having, more than they hate abortion, teen moms, and welfare spending combined. Knowing that some people out there having sex for pleasure without having their futures disrupted by unplanned pregnancies or having their health compromised by sexually transmitted infections or having to run through a traumatizing gauntlet of shrieking sidewalk counselors outside a clinic to get an abortion that keeps them up at night. I'm shocked and angered and it's stunning. And this, that this isn't national news is appalling. I saw it get one mention an aside on the Rachel Maddow show, as Rachel was covering the Baltimore riots, rightly so, worked in just an aside about everything going on right now about abortion. And this was in there. And I was – I had to get online and look it up. I could not believe it. I thought, honest to God, thought Rachel misspoke. That this program of all programs Republicans would go after and dismantle. Even I didn't think they would stoop that low. Even I didn't think they would do something that revealing of their true agenda which is to punish people for having sex for pleasure and to kill babies. They're happily willing to kill all the babies. If it means communicating to people that sex for pleasure is always wrong, they will kill the babies. And they will be killing the babies next year in Colorado when this program expires, courtesy of the Republican Party. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. Straight female on the East Coast. I'm 25. I am dating the best, sexiest, coolest, most amazing humans ever. Um, we've been dating for a couple of years. He's 31. We've decided to get married after a series of many, many conversations and always feeling like it was what would be best for us. We told my parents, we told his mom, 
everything's cool, everybody's super supportive on board. Um, and then it comes to the part where we decide we don't want a ceremony. We come from different backgrounds. I'm Jewish. He grew up Christian. I'm black. I'm sorry, I'm white. He's black. Totally different cultures in a lot of aspects. And his family is suddenly very, very unhappy with this. Um, we don't want a traditional engagement. We're not doing a proposal. I work at Planned Parenthood. That's another point of contention. I think it's really tough to figure out how to have a supportive and happy family um, when there is some drama and his family's love phone line is not a big part of his life, becoming a big part of my life. And I'm just wondering how we can make everybody feel comfortable with the fact that we're not doing the big diamond ring and the white dress, the mentioning of the gods. And to an extent, I know it doesn't matter, but there's a big part of me that wants to be accepted into this very large, very opinionated family. And although he's cool with whatever and supportive in every way he can be, there is still this kind of female group that I'm not quite allowed into yet. You don't have to make them happy. I'm really of two minds here. On the one hand, it's your wedding, it's your life, it's your relationship. If you don't want to have a ring and a ceremony and you don't want God mentioned at your ceremony, stick to your guns. And if it makes them unhappy, you just have to then own that. That yes, we are doing this thing because it's who we are and it's what we want and we'd like you to be happy for us. And if you can't be happy for us, then fuck off and don't come to the ceremony and be a dick. You have to have the confidence and the courage and the tenacity and the ova and the testes. Just lay that out there. This is who we are. This is how we're doing it. We want you there. And we want you to be happy for us. They may express disapproval and anger and whatever else because they're trying to leverage the ceremony they would like you to have out of you guys through the expression of this disapproval and the demonstration of this anger. If that's not going to work, then you just have to power through it. You just have to put up with it until they realize that this tantrum isn't going to work, that they're not going to get their way, that they're not going to be able to impose on you to the ceremony that they would rather you have by being shitty. All that said – you say you want a supportive, happy family. Sometimes you do things. Sometimes you go through the motions. When my son was born, I got on an airplane with this infant and I flew home with my then boyfriend, now husband, then couldn't be husband, now can be and is, to Chicago where we had a baptism. We went to a Catholic church and we had him baptized. I am not a believer. I'm a cultural Catholic. As, a, as an expression of my cultural Catholicism, I could wrap myself around this. Terry is an atheist and an Episcopalian. And we did it because it meant a lot to my family. It meant a lot to my mother to put her grandson in the same baptismal gown that she wore, that I wore, that her father wore, that my great-grandfather wore. It meant something to her. And it was – no skin off our noses, really. It was a very small thing. They, had, they were so accepting of us. My mother, my whole family, so accepting of us and who we are that this gesture in return to accept them and who they are and what family means and what family does when there's a new kid, you have this baptism in a church, you put the kid, new member of the family in this antique baptismal gown that everybody has worn and you welcome them to the family with this ritual. And we did it and it was lovely and it cost us nothing and it didn't turn – us into Catholics or turn Terry into a Catholic. I still consider myself Catholic. I like to call myself Catholic a lot just to annoy the Catholics who hate me and say I'm anti-Catholic. Hi there, Bill Donahue. Love your latest press release about me. Enjoyed it very much. 
So if you guys can go there, if you can do it, if you are really concerned about making them happy and it's not going to make you sad because that baptism didn't make me sad. It annoyed Terry. It didn't make me sad. Fuck Terry. I liked it. If you can get there, if you can go there, then do it for them. Do it as a gesture. But if you can't, if it makes you unhappy, if it feels like you're compromising your values and who you are, then you're just going to have to stick to your guns and risk being disliked and power through the tantrum that it sounds like they're already having. Hi, Dan. Uh, 24-year-old female, bisexual. So I have a new boyfriend. We just started dating about a month ago, and I haven't dated anybody in like four years. And so this is kind of a big deal. And, you know, it's super great. We're super into each other. Like, everything is awesome. Except the other day, uh, we were having sex and stuff, and it was great. And afterwards, he was like, you know, do you realize you, like, never touch my dick? And I had not realized that um, necessarily, except I guess I kind of had. And he was like, you know, I really like that. And I realized, I, I guess I've, like, always been sleeping with as many women as men, so, and I, like, love fingering chicks or whatever. I never realized that I don't really, you know, know how to give a hand job. And I skip that step and I give blowjobs and they're pretty good, but you know, I just like skip that step. So I don't know. And you know, so then he goes to kind of teach me how to do it. I was trying to be all cute about it and whatever. And it just didn't work. And then I was like super self-conscious and now I'm like, you know, and I like didn't get off when we banged or anything. And now like, I don't know what to do. Hi, Ken Savage. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Do you have a dick in your hand right now? Uh, I don't, but I did earlier today. How'd it go? Uh, it was it was pretty okay, <laughs> I think. Did he come this time? I don't know. No. Okay, well, practice, practice, practice. I actually called you back because I had a question I really was dying to ask you after listening to your call. You say that you give blowjobs. I'm curious how you give a blowjob without touching a dick. How does it get in your mouth? Do you like, run at it from the other side of the room with your mouth open and hope it goes in? Or do you take it in your hand before you put it in your mouth? I take it in my hand. So you have touched a dick before. You have had a dick in your hands. I have, yeah. In my life, I have. Okay. You just haven't given hand jobs. I just haven't given handjobs, yeah. That's not necessarily a problem. Most people, when they get to partnered sex, are less interested in being jacked off than they are in being blown or getting to fuck. So I don't think your male partners are all smarting or sad that you weren't jacking them off in the past. <laughs> but your current boyfriend, he likes to be jacked off. He likes a handjob now and then. And he was he's noticed yeah. that he doesn't get them from you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so he needs to take some responsibility. Here's what you're going to do. The next time you give him a hand job, you're going to make a fist around his hand and you're going to hold still and he's going to fuck it until he comes. He knows how to give himself a hand job. He knows the pace, the intensity, the right angle, all of that that works for his dick, right? Right. And so he can make all that happen for himself in your closed fist without having to fault you or guilt you or make you feel like you're doing it wrong. He can show you how it's done right. He can show you exactly how he jacks off himself, how to successfully make him come with a fist by using your fist to make himself come. Okay. So you, I think that's a good plan. You be still and stationary. He stands up. He fucks your hand. He fucks your fist. 
And is he communicating to you about pace or intensity or grip or lube, or is he just being very quiet while you attempt to masturbate him? He's just being quiet. And I'm like sitting there, all like in my head, being like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I'm pretty sure it's probably not. You guys, <laughs> you guys need to go on Garfunkel and Oates' website and watch the hand job, hand job, I don't understand job song that they did about the hand job because they don't know how to do it either. Um, <laughs> And, and he needs to communicate to you. He needs to give you some feedback, data, input. If he expects this to work, you're not a mind reader or a cock reader. You got to have – he's got to communicate. It's not enough. Is he very inexperienced or something or is he just a jerk? He's neither of those things. Okay. Well, <laughs> then, 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 I mean, then, he was kind of he was kind of jerky when he said, like, you never touch my dick. But, like – but he's not a jerk, Other than that. and he's not inexperienced. But somehow he's gotten to this stage of life. We're still operating under the assumption that uh, the ability to give a hand job, not just to him in particular, but to all men generally, is something that is an innate skill that all women and all men uh, <laughs> who sleep with men, a, a skill that they must possess or do possess. And there's no uh, onus on him to communicate his needs, his particular style, what works for him. Because I guarantee you the hand job you're giving him right now that isn't working, if you gave it to the guy sitting next to you on the bus, it probably would work. It probably works for other guys. It's not working for him because it's not the kind of stim for some reason that his dick needs. And he needs to tell you what that kind of stim is. And he, if, he, if he can't communicate about it, he can show you. You close your fist. Then he does what he needs to do with hips and dick to make it happen for himself in your fist. Or he starts talking. If he needs to be flat on his back when he gets a hand job, if he needs to lay down when he gets one, then he needs to start communicating. Okay. And how do I say this, Tim? Am I like, hey, uh, you have to communicate with me? Well, then it sounds, like, what like, should I say? it sounds like you need to start communicating. Also, you say to him, <laughs> I need some input from you. I need to know. Uh, you, you need to tell me what feels good, what doesn't feel good. When you guys have penis and vagina sex, do you communicate? Do you say, oh, that feels good. This is working. Yay. Keep going. Yeah. Okay, so you're totally. already, you can do it about penis and vagina. You can do it about penis and fist. Does this feel good? Okay. Is this working? Do you want it tighter? Do you want it looser? Should we use lube or more lube or no lube? Do you want me you know, running my bare hand over your glands? Or if he has a foreskin, do you want me moving the skin up and down and back and forth? What do you want? What feels good for you? It might also help if you – have you ever watched him jack off himself? No. Do that. Oh, that's first. Step okay. step one, tell them to masturbate in front of you. Step two, masturbate him while he tells you what works. Step three, if neither of those steps work or step two doesn't work after step one, then you close your fist and you say go to town. And you stay perfectly still. And he fucks your fist. Okay. Good luck. Give us Sounds a call. like a plan. Do it tonight. Give us a call back next week so we can uh, let everyone know how it went. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Hi. <laughs> 24-year-old, hetero, flexible male here, calling about the topic of cuddling this lockjaw. When you go for a while without going down on a woman, which happens, um, how do you deal with uh, just the muscles being out of shape? You just go and go and then the quality of what you're doing degrades because you haven't done it in a while. And then eventually you just have to quit completely. I love going down on women, so it's too bad. Um, tell me what you think. 
take little breaks, try different positions. Uh, if the woman that you're going down on is laying in bed uh, on her back and you're between her legs and your head is sort of yanked back at a sharp angle so you can get your face in there, that may be exhausting after a while. Or if you're laying on your back and she's sitting on your face and bringing a lot of pressure to bear on your jaw, that can get exhausting after a while. Sticking your tongue out can get exhausting after a while. Um, so shift up those positions to give your to go at it at different angles. We'll give your jaw little breaks and uh, go for it. Just go for it. And there's no sin. There's no – and there's no shame in having to take a little break. There's no shame in going down on somebody like crazy and then coming up for air and making out for a minute and doing a couple of other things and then keeping the pussy in play, keeping the clit in play, keep her fingers on it or your fingers on it, maintain the – erotic tension and that plateau that you're out of arousal at that moment and then dive back in. You can do that with pussy when you're eating pussy. Keep playing with the clit uh, while you make out. Do other stuff. If you're going down on somebody who has a dick and you're blowing them and your jaw gets tired, your mouth gets tired, you can take a break. You can go up. You can kiss them. You just keep stroking that dick so you don't lose the ground that you've already gained so that they're still as close to coming as they were when you came off their dick or off their clit. And then dive back in for the last 30 seconds or last two minutes or whatever it is. And you win. You gave a great blowjob. You ate pussy like a champ. The mark of good oral sex is not once the tongue is there or once the mouth is on it, the tongue and mouth are not removed until climax. You can mix it up so that you have little rests and little breaks and you can keep going and it's still good oral sex. You will have no points removed from your score for taking those little breaks. Hi, Dan. Big fan from South Korea, living here anyway. And I'm married to a woman here. And I just wanted to ask you a question about what you would do in a situation where um, the sexual aspect of the relationship has gotten to the point where I've never been allowed to go down. Uh, I've tried to respect it. I've tried to do it sort of subtly, um, make my way while we're both horny or something like that, but she's really not into it, so I've given up. But now my wife's pregnant, and she's a wonderful person. I'm really in love with her, but this sex life has completely gone away. It's just totally, there, there's nothing there anymore. So I wonder, if, am I condemned to live the rest of my life, you know, without oral sex and without... Um, you know, the kind of affection that I'm used to and give it up for, and then in the case of love, at the same time, I'm not really interested in cheating because it's, first of all, dangerous and unnecessary because I do love and respect her. So what's my sentence? I feel like evil Judge Turpin here about to issue a decree from the bench. I don't know what your sentence is. Depends on what you're willing to put up with, I guess which makes it not a sentence because you have to opt in. Sounds like you are either married to someone that you don't feel comfortable having conversations with about sex or perhaps someone from a culture where they don't have conversations about sex and intimacy in a very explicit way. Uh, and you got to push through that. The person that you need to be talking to is the wife that you have certain expectations and desires and needs cliche. I have needs, but you have needs and you want them met within this 
in this relationship that you want to have a good and kicking long-term sexually satisfying intimate relationship with your wife and you love her and you want to be intimate and sexual with her and just with her. And you need to throw that all out there and see what she says. And unfortunately I'm not her, so I can't predict what she might say. And I don't want to say that you've wasted your breath calling me and saying these things to me. Uh, and I'm only reading this into your call because you don't say it you don't say it, but it sounds like you haven't had these kinds of conversations with your wife. You need to, and you need to get on the same page about what her sexual expectations are, what yours are, what your cultural default settings are, and what her cultural default settings are. And if this is some sort of cross-cultural relationship, you guys are going to have to come to an understanding and a workable solution. You need to get on the same page. I don't know who she is, what she's like, and maybe it's not cultural. Maybe it's just her family. Maybe it's just a sort of a thing that she expected that pregnant women don't have sex or that she doesn't have to have sex or isn't allowed to or that it should be a bad mother or something terrible if during her pregnancy she acted on the horniness or sexual impulses that she's feeling and so she's just shutting herself down and talking to you might help open that all up. But you got to go talk to her. The one example you give of how you've attempted to communicate with her about these things is nonverbal. You tried to do it subtly. You wanted to eat her pussy. You tried to do it subtly. You tried to make your way down there and she shut it down. She wiggled away from you or pulled you back up. But I'm sure she physically communicated in that moment that what you were physically communicating in that moment, your desire that you were broadcasting, them, not going to happen. But you guys didn't talk about it. You need to talk about it when you're not – rolling around in bed. You need to have a conversation about it, a long extended one, not with me, with her. And only then will you be able to determine what your sentence is. Only then will you know now who you're married to. Now's a terrible time to figure that out. Now that you're married and your wife is pregnant, now you're going to find out if you're sexually compatible and if you're going to be sexually satisfied for the long term in this relationship. Wish I had a time machine. We'd go run the tape back and take you back to the courtship and hammer this all out before the wedding, before the fertilization. But better late than never. Get on it. Hi, Dan. I'm a uh, 28-year-old male in Texas, a straight male in Texas. Or we'll, we'll see about that, I guess. So... I have found myself very attracted to trans women, um, at least trans women who are, I guess what the term would be, passing. Um, and, I, and I'm interested in pursuing some kind of relationship with someone like that, but uh, I don't really know how one goes about that. You know, I know that there are trans people in gay bars, but, you know, whenever I'm in a gay bar, I, I don't seem to attract that sort of attention. I, I attract a lot of gay attention. So I, I, I don't really know how to do this, and I was wondering what kind of advice you might have. Joining me by phone to help answer this one, Chelsea Poe. She's an AVN-nominated trans porn performer, a writer, an activist. She was one of the 2015 Trans 100, uh, and she's the first trans woman included on alt-porn site God's Girls. Hey, Chelsea, thanks for uh, making time for us today. Hello, thanks for having me. Okay, so this guy's question, 28-year-old in Texas, um, attracted to trans women 
And the question is, basically, how does he go about finding a trans woman to date? What's the advice for guys like him? I mean, here's the thing. I feel like so many people who come at it with that mindset, I need to try to find a trans woman. We're kind of everywhere. As much as you probably don't know, we're everywhere. I mean, we do all the same things as everyone. We go to Walgreens. We go to the grocery store or anything else. We're on all the same dating sites everyone else is on. So he has the option of going to OkCupid, and there's many, many different options on the gender spectrum there. He can find a trans woman? Um, yeah, there are, yeah. But I don't highly suggest going up to a trans woman and being like, I'm into you because you're trans. Because that feels fetishistic and kind of reduces her mm -hmm. gender. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're into all women, just be into all women. And I totally think it's straight if a straight guy is into trans women because we're also women, you know? Really? Uh, not, not to you know tell you you're doing trans wrong or trans activists wrong. There's so many people out there who are sort of have hangups about and are not attracted to people who might be trans or are trans. Uh, and, and I get it. You know, there are people that to be fetishized, to, to be objectified in that way, whatever mm -hmm. it is, whether it's trans or someone's into Asians or someone's into amputees, uh, not equating those three things, just throwing it out there that those yeah. are also people who sometimes are fetishized for that and feel awkward about it. But are there people out there who are specifically attracted to trans women who are able to express that without making a trans woman feel objectified or fetishized, objectified or fetishized? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I think there totally is. But I think it's just being into trans women like you'd be into anyone else. You know, um, I have a lot of fans where I hear this a lot, where they identify as straight, and they're like, I'm into women. It doesn't matter if the woman's trans or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, trans women are as much women as anyone else. But is it okay for someone to be attracted to trans women and specifically and only attracted to trans women and being very out and open about that? Or is that always objectification? Um, if you're attracted to trans women, you also have to be attracted to cis women. It's not okay to just be attracted to trans women. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, obviously, people have their preferences and everything. And it's very much so how you actually address it. If you're just trying to look for a trans woman to fit this role you might have seen in porn, mm -hmm. I think that's going down the wrong route. But if you're trying to go into a relationship or it's understood what you guys are both looking for, I think that's totally consensual and great. Okay. So w beyond going to the dating sites and going to the places where – women are and some of those women are going to be trans is there anything specific he can do that might up his chances because you know trans women are a tiny tiny percentage of women out there what mm -hmm. can he do to up his chances of actually meeting a trans woman out there in the world full of women i mean i think it's not necessarily trying to run into a trans woman because we are because there aren't a huge percent of us but i would say on dating sites it's really the best thing but once you meet us just treat us like any other woman of course of um, course yeah, we don't want to be treated any differently. And that's why I feel like a lot of, especially mainstream transport educates cis men into this feeling of, well, I'm into a trans woman. I, they're going to do everything I've seen them do on porn, and I have to be able to take a dick in my ass and all this other stuff. It's all such misconceptions. Because mm -hmm. Having sex with us is as different as having sex with all different kinds of women. We all enjoy sex in a completely different way. One thing I want to give him props for is that he uses the word trans. A lot of straight mm -hmm. guys, straight guys in places like Texas in particular, when I get their calls or I get their letters and they're attracted to or interested in or open to being with trans women, they use slurs. They use words that we're not allowed to use, right? 
Um, um, yep. And they're problematic, and I think a lot of them pick them up in porn uh, because they're oh, completely. thrown around in porn a lot. Do you want to say these words so that I don't get in trouble for saying these words again? <laughs> what are the words that they should not be using that this guy, to his um, credit, did not use? I mean, it's there's a lot of words that <laughs> people shouldn't use. You shouldn't use the T word, tranny. You shouldn't use... Um, the term female, you probably shouldn't use the term chick with a dick, he, she, whatever down the list. And those words, um, get, thrown I, around, those words get thrown around a lot in porn. It's considered a, a genre of porn. You see it on a lot of porn sites. For a lot yep. of uh, cisgendered straight guys, that is their first sort of exposure to and lingo download from like trans land. And you, as an activist, you started a petition to try to fix that problem, to, got, to try to get porn companies to stop popularizing or normalizing the use of these terms that so many trans women find very deeply dehumanizing and, and, and hateful. Tell us about that effort and tell us about your petition. Um, yeah. Well, first I want to say it's not only um, men who are getting educated through this. It's usually how trans women usually find out about transness in the first place when they're like first discovering porn and they see a trans person. Mm-hmm. So from day one, we're also being ingrained with these terms that we're not choosing for ourselves, that porn is essentially putting on to us. Um, mm-hmm. I started that petition in November. Um, I do mainly queer porn, um, which I've never released any of my own DVDs with any slurs being used. Um, and that's really important to me. So what does what the, what the, the petition say and what's the goal? Um, the petition is to push for non-trans, non-trans-owned sites to stop using transphobic terminology to um, start profiting off of trans bodies. Mm -hmm. So essentially these companies who are owned by white men who have made millions of dollars off off trans bodies are, are really putting those trans bodies in a kind of psychic and sometimes physical uh, danger by, Oh, completely by propping up and, and promulgating these terms that are dehumanizing. Your beef is here. You have these companies that are profiting off trans performers, trans bodies, uh, people who are attracted to trans uh, bodies and want to watch this porn mm-hmm. at the same time that they're making the world a less safe place for the performers that they're making this money off of. Yes. Um, it's a really huge issue because we really don't have an option in porn to be in anything else. Um, we don't have a say in any of these terms for the most part, unless you start your own company, which I essentially just started making all my own stuff because I didn't want to be labeled as a female. I didn't want to be labeled as a tranny because that's not me. That's not my sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just don't have an option. We haven't never had a real option in this industry. You've been pushing this effort since November. Have you met with any mm-hmm. success? Have any of the companies uh, listened and, and changed the way they market the pornography they produce? Um, yes, a few have. Um, kink.com has switched their terminology. Um, when you type in Gmail on kink.com now, it actually brings you to a page that educates you and says, this is actually a slur to trans women. Don't call trans women this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a site that they didn't change their name, but they changed all the terminology on their site. Um, it's a site, if you still have the problem, that name is called Gmail Strokers. But um, they changed all the terminology on their website from tranny, Gmail, and TS to trans woman and trans girl. Mm-hmm. which I think is a huge improvement because at least reinforces the point that trans women are women and we're girls and just have as much womanhood as anyone else. But you're getting some resistance. Um, yes. Um, reproductions, um, double films, 
Evil Angel and Bob's Funeral still uses use them. Actually, earlier this month, actually, this last week, um, Groovy Productions actually attacked the Trans Lifeline because they wouldn't accept money from them because of their terminology. Mm-hmm. And so released this, is, wait, this wait, huge. It, it's Groovy with a G? Yeah, Groovy, G R O O B Y. Groovy Productions, they offered a, to make a donation to the Trans Lifeline, which is like the Trevor Project for trans people. It's a crisis yes. hotline staffed by trans people for trans people. And they were they refused to take the money? Um, they took some amount of money, but essentially Groovy wanted to have all their flyers on their website uh-huh. so people could donate through there. And it's trans women run, and they didn't feel comfortable with tying a brand that uses Shemail and has some notorious problems um, with their trans performers. So what do, what do so they say? These companies, you know, kink.com and some others listened and to their credit. That's a great idea what kink.com is doing. Mm-hmm. If you search Shemail, it takes you to a page that educates you. That's awesome. These companies yeah. that are resisting, uh, that are, you know, not listening, that you've asked to, to, to change, to, to stop using these terms, what are their justifications? What are they telling you? Why, why won't they make this change? It's been a lot of different things. One, they say it's money that no one's going to want to buy trans porn if it's not labeled as Gmail, which I disagree with because I've released all my own DVDs, which have been super successful without using any of the terminology. Another reason is, is it would take actual physical time to, you know, you have to, changing URLs is actually a pretty hard thing to do. It does cost some money. It will take a few weeks probably. Mm-hmm. But even just changing the terms on the website, like um, what Sammy Mancini from She Must Workers did, that took an afternoon. That was two days into the petition. He sent me an email. He's like, hey, I appreciate you doing this. I changed them. Here you go. It was like an afternoon. Where's the petition for people out there listening, like this caller in Texas, uh, particularly guys out there who dig this kind of porn? Where is this petition? Where can they find it? And I'm telling you all who like trans porn or attracted to trans people and other people to go sign it. Where can they find it to sign it, Chelsea? Um, you can sign on change.org. It's give motivation to um, change the use of um, terms used in mainstream trans porn. Um, you can find it also through my Twitter. My Twitter is at Chelsea Poe 666. Um, and you can also find it on my website at ChelseaPoe.com. I mean, just ChelseaPoe.com. That's great. Thank you so much uh, for jumping on the phone today and good luck with the, the campaign and congratulations on the success you've had so far. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hi, Ben. I have a question. I'm a polyamorist and I'm living with two partners. Uh, we're very happy together. We've been together for four years. The relationship is pretty open, but I'm usually the one who have uh, partners and they're both aware of it. Uh, recently, a friend reached out from the past, someone I knew I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, and she's in a monogamous relationship. Uh, not very happy with the boyfriend she's currently in a relationship with. She's been, they've been together for four years, and she's been talking to me of opening up the relationship, being polyamory and everything. Um, but obviously, there is a little bit more going on. She's uh, into me. I'm into her. Um, you know, last time we dated, we held hands. I almost kissed her and I told her that I don't want to go further because she's going to probably feel guilty. And she told me she has all these feelings toward other guys. So on one hand, I don't want to pursue it 
because I don't want you know to be the source of any anything happening in the relationship, even though she indicated she wants to see other guys in general. On the other hand, I don't care. I don't care about the guy she's with. I care about her. And if she wants to see me on the side or something, I don't feel I really care. I kind of feel I should care, but I don't. And I don't think she's going to break the relationship anytime soon. So I'm just thinking about what to do. Again, I'm very supportive of her. Uh, would like her to also date other guys besides me, get into this lifestyle, but maybe she's not ready. And I don't know if I'm willing to be the person she's cheating with. I think you risk bringing a lot of drama and chaos into your own happy, content, honest, above board, settled poly life and lifestyle by fucking this woman who is lying to her partner. Because when he finds out, and it's a when, because fucking you is probably her way of slamming her hand down on the self-destruct button, destroy the relationship she's in now. Who knows how big an explosion slamming the hand down on that button is going to create? And are you going to get singed or burned? You know, if it gets ugly and dramatic and chaotic and, you know, I'm not saying violence necessarily is going to break out, but if he's mad at you too, not just at her, mad at also the guy that she was fucking when he found out, is he going to get in your face? Is he going to come and scream and yell at you? Is he going to burn you all over social media? Is he going to murder you in your sleep? I don't know. Any of those things are possible depending on the size of the explosion she's engineering, which is what she's doing. She's unhappy in this relationship. She wants to fuck other people. She's going to do it by cheating. He's going to find out it's going to end the relationship. That's how that works. On the other hand, sometimes it takes getting it elsewhere for a minute for people to scrounge around inside themselves and find the resolve to end the thing that they're in now. Sometimes cheating isn't slamming the hand down on the self-destruct button. It's getting a taste of your future life, your life when this relationship is over and you're free again that inspires people to go and end the relationship. So you're kind of on your own. Like what are you willing to risk? Like fucking you may be the transformative experience that she needs to go end this relationship that's bad for her that she wants out of anyway – Fucking you may be something she's willing to keep doing and doing and doing until she gets caught and it's going to explode in her face and potentially your face too. So it's up to you what you want to risk. I would have a long conversation with her if I were you. You're in polyland. You're in the poly community. You're an above board. Everyone's being honest. Nobody has to be shitty and sneak around. And she's asking you to return to sneak around land where even if you don't have to hide it, you're participating in her sneaking around, you will be then sneaking around some yourself. Are you willing to do that? Or you could say to her, I will fuck the shit out of you when you're single or when this is above board. And you can be the leverage that she needs to get to more honest, stable and less explosive place. Hi, um, I'm calling with a question about my relationship with my soon to be ex-husband. We've been living apart for about four months now, we have been married a little over five years. We have a two-year-old son together. I have been trying out sex with a couple of other people, you know, people that I know. Very, just nothing really has been um, satisfying. Um, and, of course, I should just uh, keep looking. But um, recently, I had sex with my ex-husband. Um, or seemed to be ex-husband, and it was really great. 
and it always has been. Um, but the reason that we are splitting is is trust issues around whether or not he has been unfaithful to me. I'm not sure if it's possible for me to continue having sex with him if we, if I, I am definitely certain that I want to get divorced and I want to pursue other relationships at some point. I don't necessarily need to rush that right now, the other relationships, but um, I do want to have sex um, and he's really good at it. So um, I'm wondering if you can give me some advice on how I can emotionally protect myself. Um, obviously we should be using protection because I've already declared that this is, we are not in, um, or even pretending that we're in a monogamous relationship anymore. I'm not sure if I should just back off and not, not even go there, or if it's possible. I'm not sure um, how the relationship could be fairly structured. I, I need like some sort of guidance so that you know, I have an emotional protection and I'm not also leading him to believe that we're going to get back together because we're not. You want to know how you can emotionally protect yourself in this circumstance. And for the life of me, I can't see what could potentially be emotionally risky or tricky about fucking the man you're married to, but you're divorcing that you've only been living apart from for four months. Who's the father of your two-year-old son. What are the risks? What are the dangers? I can't see them. It's a good thing to be friends with your exes. I'm a big supporter of uh, friendly relationships with exes. I actually think it's a really wonderful benchmark of uh, a person's character if they can have good friendly relations with their exes. I think that's something you should look out for. Uh, beware the person who speaks terribly and badly of all their exes and has terrible relationships with all of their exes because they are the common denominator in all of those terrible relationships. But he's not quite your ex yet. And perhaps I do know some people who have FWB relationships with their exes. The sex was great. I like them as people. They weren't great romantic partners, sometimes because people had different expectations for their committed official boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife, and the person who was a perfectly adequate sex partner and buddy fell short of those expectations, so they got rid of them rather than maybe shifting their expectations a little bit and expecting maybe less or something different, which might have made the relationship go, but if he's not who you want to be with, but... It is possible to have an FWB arrangement with your ex. It might be easier to make that arrangement and have it feel less emotionally fraught if it hadn't been just four months since he moved out and you guys were exes, officially, formally, legally exes. Still your husband. The sex is great. You say he's great in bed and you want to have great sex. You should fuck him. I think you should fuck him and let the chips fall where they may and it may get emotionally dicey, uh, may get stormy, but it's a divorce. It's going to be dicey and stormy anyway. You might as well have some sex along the way. All that said, you say that this relationship, this marriage is ending. You're divorcing the father of your son, ending this relationship because he was unfaithful and can't be faithful. And – you don't indicate anywhere in your call that you guys have a high conflict interpersonal relationship setting the sex aside. You say the sex is good, even great, and you miss it. And I don't want to be a fucking evangelist for open relationships. But if it is a low conflict relationship, if you actually like him 
and you like sex with him and the only problem is monogamy. The monogamous expectation is why you feel you have to divorce him because he's incapable of being faithful. Maybe it would be easier to get rid of that, to, to shift your expectations around what love and commitment is rather than to shit can this marriage and your husband and everything else that might work about it. But I'm just throwing that on the table, something for you to think about. If you're a listener to the show, you probably already thought about that and you have very good reasons uh, for divorcing him and it's not going to work and you know it and you can see it. And that's why you asked the question, should you fuck him in the interim? And I say you should. I would if I were in your shoes. But what you're asking me to do, to figure out a way to protect yourself emotionally, to wall off somehow emotions from all of this, I, I don't think that's possible. You're going to have the emotions. You're going to have all sorts of feels as you divorce this man, as you end this marriage. It's not possible to fuck this man and then say this little part, this chunk, the sexual dimension of our relationship, we're going to make sure there are no feels here as we're having the feels we're having about the end of the marriage, the divorce, the impact it's having on our kid and our living arrangements and all the rest of it. I can't imagine that whatever feels you're going to have, whatever emotions you're going to experience tied to the sex will be louder bigger and more troublesome than all the emotions and feels you're going to have that are tied to everything else going on. So might as well fuck him. We're going to take a quick break from your calls. There are tons of researchers and scientists and psychologists and shrinks and everybody else, sociologists out there looking into sex and sexuality and relationships and marriages and how that stuff works. When one of them releases the results of a study that we find interesting, we invite them on a show for a little segment called what do you got? Joining us to talk about his work and what he's learned, Sean Wojcik, a social psychologist from the University of California, Irvine. So, Sean, what do you got? Well, I've uh, recently conducted some research for my dissertation on the relationship between political ideology and happiness, uh, which is something a lot of people have studied before, um, and a lot of people have found that political conservatives report being happier and more satisfied with their lives. Well, than, of course, um, of course, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> well, that's, that's one theory. So there, there are a lot of uh, hypotheses about, uh, you know, why conservatives report being happier than liberals. Um, you know, your, your hypothesis is, is one. Other people have said there are personal, social, and cultural values that are unique to conservatism that uh, make people happier. Other people say it's about their sense of agency and optimism. Mm -hmm. uh, and others say that this is something that might be closer to, to your response is that conservatism kind of offers this palliative function of justifying social inequality so that liberals are kind of torn up about feeling bad about the underprivileged and conservatives don't have that same problem. So it's a sort of a, an intersection between... Uh, ignorance is bliss, and who gives a fuck about you? Uh, that's one way to put it, I guess. I yeah. mean, I I've noticed um, that we've talked a lot on the show about the empathy gap or the empathy problem that so many conservatives have where they can't, you know, Nancy Reagan cares about stem cell research because Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's. Rob Portman is for gay marriage because his son's a faggot. Same with uh, Dick Cheney and his daughter. Uh, Rush Limbaugh is for drug treatment instead of incarceration because he got his ass addicted to drugs. Megyn Kelly on Fox News is for maternal paid leave because she had a baby. Conservatives can't empathize until it literally happens to them. They don't have the moral imagination that liberals have where you can project yourself into someone else's life and 
feel bad for them and want the world to be better for them. So is that why liberals are generally more miserable? Well, that's, uh, again, that's one of the explanations, or, you know, related to one of the explanations, they didn't put it in quite those terms, uh, that other social scientists have put out there. Uh, but what my colleagues and I have, have recently suggested is that conservatives have uh, this stronger tendency to, to evaluate themselves in a really confident way. And so what we found is that of all this research showing that conservatives uh, report being happier than liberals, it's, it's all based on self-report. Surveys and questionnaires. Are you just um, so are that's you, something? Are you just being super polite? You're trying to say they're lying, like they're lying about climate change uh, and evolution and the risks and dangers of gay marriage. They're just lying about this too. No, it's not so much lying. I think of it more as self confidence. I mean, really, it's we observe it across a whole bunch of of different traits and abilities when people are are evaluating themselves on these surveys and questionnaires. Um, a lot of people and, and liberals included tend to evaluate themselves in this overly positive way. So like 91% of people once said that they're above average drivers. <laughs> um, it's not that they're lying, right? I mean, a lot of people believe that they're above average drivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people are, but probably not more than half. Um, and so when we look at all kinds of different traits and abilities, we, we find this phenomenon, but it's stronger for conservatives. And it appears that happiness is one of those traits that gets reported at this very high level. Um, and it's, so what we did in our study was try to look for, uh, behavioral manifestations of happiness where the self-report bias might not be at play. And what did you find? What do you got? Well, we looked at the language that people use both in Congress and in social media. We looked at the way people smile in their, uh, photographs. And what we found is that liberals actually display more happiness than conservatives, even though you get the opposite pattern people are self-reporting. And so we saw more positive emotional language by liberals um, in Congress, on Twitter. Um, I've replicated this elsewhere, too. Um, And also, when you look at the the smiles of people in photographs, uh, we looked at both how people smile with their mouths, but also how people smile with their eyes, which is what psychologists think is indicating more genuine expressions of enjoyment and happiness. And what we find is that liberals are not only smiling more intensely than conservatives, they also smile more with the eyes, which indicate this more genuine presentation of happiness. So liberals are happier, but they self-report as more miserable. And conservatives are less happy, but they self-report as happier? That's one interpretation. So it really gets kind of philosophical about how we ultimately define happiness. So on the one hand, if you look at behavior, then liberals are happier. But they feel, um, but, but, they feel hand, but, but liberals feel guilty about that. They have happiness privilege, so they're going to feel terrible about being happier and claim to be miserable. So they can be well, in maybe solidarity that's what's going with the on. other miserable people of the world. Yeah, that could be it. I mean, it's it's tough to say, and it's it's hard as a psychologist to look at this and and to really say with confidence that these behaviors are more important than self-reports or vice versa. And so, I mean, you might not like the, it might feel like I'm, uh, you know, giving a, you know, talking out of both sides of my mouth here, but really it is tough to say that either group is happier. And I think that's what we come away with this saying is that um, it really depends on how you measure happiness. If we want to say either group is, is truly happier than the other. But if you measure happiness by self-reporting, conservatives are happier. If you measure happiness by these, by evidence of happiness, liberals are happier. That's basically what you found. Yeah, that's what we're finding. Wow. Well, that's good to know. 
So liberals have the decency yeah. to pretend to be miserable and conservatives lie and pretend to be happier because, you know, conservatives are all about winning and, you know, asserting that the American life or the, the their lifestyle and God and guns and grits and gravy, that all of this is everything anybody should want and I've got it. So I've got to pretend to be happy even though God's guns, grits and gravy is making me miserable. Yeah, it, so it's it's interesting. You can look at it and say that conservatives are over-reporting their happiness, or you might look at it and say liberals are under-reporting their happiness. could be that both of those are true. It could be that just one of those is true. Um, and it's really tough to say. It's it's interesting that no one else has really compared these groups looking at behavior before. Have you factored in the, 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 the liberal – anybody who's ever been involved in, in liberal politics, particularly lefty radical politics as I have and Coronation and ACT UP and other organizations – it is a phenomenon that if you like appear to be happy, people will jump down your throat about, you know, what about Darfur? I can't believe you're going on vacation when people are – look what's happening in Darfur. Like, there's always someone more miserable out there that whatever you're working on, how can you be working on this when this is going on and you should be prioritizing this instead of that? And there's all this guilt-tripping worst-case scenario shit that goes on. And, you know, anybody has been to a liberal meeting and talked about their vacation and had three or four people scold them – is familiar with this mm-hmm. phenomena, so you don't go to that liberal or radical lefty progressive whatever and mention the fact that you just got back from vacation, lest you be scolded. Right. And I think that can create yeah. sort of a downward pressure upon liberal reports of happiness or enjoyment or pleasure. Maybe that has something to do that with could, it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we've looked at this mostly in the sense that uh, conservatives might have a stronger tendency to uh, want to present themselves as happy, but the opposite could definitely be true where liberals want to underreport how happy they are. Um, and I, it's interesting too, because I've heard this from, you know, some conservatives when they hear these findings, they say, well, maybe conservatives are smiling less because, you know, not because they're, they're less happy, but because they're, they're more formal or they're just uh, more professional or they're less likely to you know, want to express happiness in a context where, you know, they should be taking things seriously. And so there is, there are some caveats when you interpret any one of these findings to say, well, is this absolutely a perfect measure of happiness? No. But when you look at the the overall pattern across these different measures, it does seem that that liberals are are showing it and and conservatives are reporting it. So listeners who want to read uh, about your research, where can they find it? So this was in uh, the April edition of Science. I think it was April 6th. Um, you can also find it uh, at my website, Um And we also have a lot of the research was conducted at yourmorals.org, which is a psychological research platform where we do a lot of uh, survey research on politics and um, morality and psychology. And um, so you can learn more about it there, too. So for listeners out there who didn't grow up in places with uh, large Polish communities, would you like to spell Wojciech so they can find Sean Wojciech.com? Sure. Well, yeah, and for the large Polish communities out there, I apologize for Americanizing the pronunciation, but it's uh, W-O-J-C-I-K, and my first name is F-E-A-N. Terrible. I have to spell it everywhere I go. <laughs> SeanWojcik.com. Check out his work. He's a social psychologist from the University of California, Irvine. And liberals, keep smiling in your photographs with your eyes so we will win the happiness wars. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Sean. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old heteroflexible girl living in Chicago, and I recently got out of a long-term relationship, yay, and have been basically a serial monogamist until now. Um, but I'm really excited about being single and dating around, exploring my kinks further, and experimenting with three sounds. 
Um, but here's what's holding me back. Um, when I was a teenager, I suffered with terrible depression, and I cut myself during that time. Now, I haven't cut myself in 10 years, but it unfortunately left me with some scars, the most significant of which are on my upper thighs and are quite visible when I'm naked, and they're very obviously the result of cutting. I'm incredibly self-conscious about these scars, and really the only people who know about them are former lovers, simply because I can't hide them when I'm naked. Um, no one has ever reacted really negatively towards them, but it's such an awkward conversation, and I never know when or how to bring it up. It seems really personal to bring up before sex with a new person, but it's totally, totally awkward. When a new lover asks me about them, you know, during foreplay or even during sex or just like soon afterwards, you know, when we're cuddling, it's just, there's just no good time for this. I love sex. I'm really comfortable with everything else about my body. And I've actually always been excited by the thought of doing some kind of sex work like stripping or being a cam girl. But I've never pursued this or casual hookups because of these fucking scars. Um, do you have any advice on how to introduce my personal history with depression and cutting to new sex partners? Or am I just making too big of a deal about this? I just don't know what other people really think about these scars, and I personally just find them so unsexy. It might help if you embraced these scars, if you started to think of them as trophies, uh, you know, evidence of the battle that you fought, the successful battle that you fought against your depression and the demons that tormented you as an adolescent. And you came out on the other side of that and you won, you beat it back and you have some battle scars and they're evidence of that journey, that triumph of yours over depression, over those impulses, over you conquered your demons and here are your medals and you can run from them. You can be self-conscious about them and that's not going to change anything. It's just going to put a, you know, a stumbling block in your path or you can fully embrace them and you can accept them and you can love them the way it sounds like you now love and accept yourself. They are a part of you. They're a part of your history. And yeah, it is awkward. Like when do you tell the guy's going to notice if you're going to go to bed with somebody, they're going to see these things. They're going to notice. It sounds like most of the guys that you've gone to bed with have had the good guy decency to clock them. They, they saw them, they register and they don't say anything, right? They go through with it. They have sex with you. They don't freak out. They don't jump out of bed. They don't demand in the moment, except for the handful, an explanation. But later, after sex, after they've demonstrated to you that this is not an issue, it's not unattractive, it doesn't ruin you or spoil you for them, they bring it up. They ask about it the way people ask about scars. People notice things on people's bodies when they sleep with them and sometimes people will inquire about them and there's something different about scars and I know cutting is a whole other thing but there's something different about scars. You know, you wouldn't ask people about – moles on their faces. You wouldn't ask people about all sorts of things about their bodies. But people regard, you know, I have this great big appendectomy scar. I have never had sex with someone who didn't ask me about that scar. And I don't feel bad about that scar. I also don't feel responsible for it. It's not evidence of depression or mental illness I had to, to overcome, but it's a mark on my body. And I'm asked about it. And I tell that story. 
And when the guys ask about your scar, I think that there's no shame in having suffered from depression and having overcome it. You should take pride in that. And you should tell them about your scar. Tell them how you got it. Tell them what it means to you now. It's evidence of how far you've come, right? It's not evidence that you're broken or damaged. The age of that scar, the age of the last one and the years that have passed, the years that have elapsed between that last one and now are evidence of how healthy you are and how together you are. You can track it. You can date it. And you should toss that out there. I wrote a column years ago to this woman who was struggling with this issue that she had scars from cutting and they were on her legs and on her arms and she didn't know what to do. And she wanted to have sex with people. And I wrote, part of my answer was, I think most guys will be understanding about it. That's the first thing I said to her. And it's true of your experience caller. Is it not? Most guys have been perfectly understanding about it. I do think most guys will be understanding about it. People have a way of forgiving and or overlooking imperfections in people that they're attracted to. Also, part of dating and mating is making yourself vulnerable to another human being, putting your trust in that human being and showing that human being your literal and your figurative scars. Any guy you show and tell will want some reassurances that you're not cutting yourself anymore, that you've gotten help, that you're not made of glass, and that you're looking for a boyfriend or a sex partner, not a therapist. And you can provide all that. That's what I told that girl 16 years ago in Savage Love. And I was, and that's what I'm telling you now. It sounds like you're in a better place. You seem less conflicted, less shut down than that reader of my column was when she wrote me. And if you're out there listening, I hope things are great with you. But the advice I gave her so long ago, I wanted to share with you too. And you got to love it. You got to embrace it. You got to love your body for what it is. And like somebody who is HIV positive, like somebody who has a healthy kink or somebody who is X, Y, or Z, this can be a magic wand for you. This is something that you can use. Somebody has herpes, somebody has HIV, somebody who has a thing that's hard to disclose. And people get self-conscious about that disclosure because they fear rejection. Embrace that rejection. Run toward it because that is, if you shift, change your attitude about it and you regard it as this magic wand, this superpower, that when you share this detail of your life, of who you are, of how, what shaped you and made you the person that is in their bed with them then or about to be in their bed with them, when you tell them this one thing about you, their reaction tells you a great deal about them. If they freak out, if they're cruel, if they're assholes. Look at what you've spared yourself. You don't have to hang out for long to figure out that this person is an asshole. If when you disclose that you're HIV positive, they freak out with all this stigma, shame, and phobia. You're like, oh, okay. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Back out of the room. Leave that – get away from that crazy person. Same thing for you. When you reveal this, they freak out. In a way, they've done you a favor. They're not the right guy for you if they can't handle this detail, if they can't – Love it, love you, be caring, thoughtful. That's not somebody you want to be in bed with generally. Anyway, I'm going on too long. I feel for you. Good luck. Hi, Dan. So I recently heard about this phenomenon called ASMR. I, Russell Brand did a piece on it earlier this week on his YouTube channel. And in that piece, he was 
comparing and contrasting ASMR and porn, and um, I'm fascinated. I've since read up on it and watched a bunch of the videos, and as far as I can tell, it's all about sensuality and the senses and relaxation, but I'm curious because, of course, sensuality and sexuality are crossover and meet in many places, and... Um, I'm just curious, like, what percentage of the people who are really into it are sitting there in front of the screen jerking off? Like, how sexual a phenomenon is this, actually? Uh, um, I'm really curious uh, what your take on that is or what you know about that. It's the kind of thing I can imagine, like, you could hire a sex worker to come and do an ASMR session and jerk you off while they do it. I don't know. Is that a thing? I'm, I'm totally fascinated and curious. So what do you know about that, Dan? Thanks. Everything I know about ASMR, I learned after listening to your call and Googling around a little bit. I did know this before I started Googling around. If it exists in the world, someone somewhere is jacking off about it right now. So that whispering is a thing that exists. Someone somewhere is jacking off about whispering. Uh, Little crinkly sounds, running makeup brushes over uh, microphones. Yeah, That is a thing that exists in the world so we can infer as it is a thing that exists in the world that someone somewhere is jacking off about it. People are jacking off somewhere right now about things that don't exist in the world. My favorite example as ever, centaurs. They don't exist. People jack off about centaurs all the time. I talk about centaurs so much people now think I jack off about centaurs. I do not for the record jack off about centaurs. But somebody right now somewhere is jacking off about centaurs. I watched the Russell Brand video that you mentioned. Fascinating. His take on ASMR. The fact that there's so many videos on YouTube of very conventionally attractive, very skinny, pretty girls whispering. And for some tiny percentage of people, men and women, this is their pornography. Enough of them out there, however tiny the percentage, to create the demand that now there are ASMR stars. It's a thing. What do I know about it? It's a thing. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Human beings and our seemingly infinite capacity to go perv on whatever. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Exhausting too also because it's just one more thing I'm going to have to keep track of and know about. I'm ashamed to see that the Daily Beast and some local TV news station found out about this before I did. But I rely on you sometimes, listeners and callers. People who read my column and send me emails to keep me up to date. I learn as much from you guys as you guys learn from me, if not more. Pardon me, if not more. Hey, Dan, I've got a comment for the caller who really wants to give his wife a facial. I've always been pretty opposed to facials, but when an ex-boyfriend really wanted one, I agreed as long as we did it in the shower. One of the biggest issues for me was the thought of a mess and dealing with the cleanup afterwards. No cum in my hair, please. So doing it in the shower and being able to immediately wash up afterwards worked for me. Maybe easing into things this way will make her more willing to give it a go and possibly take it to the bedroom after she sees how happy it makes you. Either way, please don't expect this to happen every time you go. Good luck. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about episode 444, where you compare cunnilingus with a facial. I think that's just silly. I love to eat pie but I would not want anyone to throw a pie in my face. Hi, Dan. This is in response to a man who was questioning whether facials were inherently degrading and misogynistic to women. And I just have to say, 
I'm a feminist. My boyfriend is definitely a feminist. And we definitely enjoy having some dirty, kinky stuff where he comes on my face. And it's great. I love it. I don't feel degraded or ashamed. And even if I did, that would be okay, too. Uh, I especially love it when after he blows a load in my face, he licks it off my face. That's really fucking hot. Hi, Dan. Uh, This is the woman from the last episode whose rabbi father was coming to her defense. So I just wanted to say that I talked to my parents and the defense went fabulously. They were super supportive. And actually, we all just listened to the podcast yesterday, just the section with my question, because my parents were there. And my dad wanted to point out that Judaism has a great attitude towards sex. He said that Gershon Shalom, who is the great expert on Jewish mysticism, pointed out that it's the only major religion that in no way promotes or celebrates celibacy. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. The call for submissions is up for Hump Fest 2015. You can find out how you can make a film for the world's best amateur dirty porn film festival by going to humptour.com and clicking on Submit. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Chelsea Poe on Twitter at Chelsea Poe 666. A big thank you to Sean Wojcik. And thanks to the Wet Spots for their What You Got theme song. And check out their other music at wetspotsmusic.com. Quickly before we go, a tweet from Michael Stewart at Mike underscore J underscore Stewart. He tweets, stuck in Kathmandu Airport for hours, binge listening to Savage Lovecast is the only thing keeping me sane. Oh, that's heavy. Mike, we're glad that you're getting out of Kathmandu. Our hearts go out to everyone in Paul, who suffered in the wake of this earthquake, is devastating. Glad that the Savage Lovecast helped you pass the time in the airport. I kicked in some money uh, for the Nepal relief efforts. I hope everyone else out there listening kicked in a little bit dough too. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Cartoonian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.